Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Howdy, howdy, everybody. What is cracking? What is good? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. And I really hope this is the only Catholic podcast you would ever listen to that would start with what's cracking, what's good. (laughs) Um, What up, everybody? So if this is your first time tuning in, we are in the the middle of a bit of our next or current mini series on uh, politicizing the Bible. That's a great book by Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker. And we it's a little bit of a shift of gears for us here on the show. Usually we start the show with a Greek or Hebrew word of the day, and then we dive into very specific uh, biblical text in order to read them, examine them, and to grow from them and grow in our knowledge of uh, our faith. Uh, but in this mini series, we, we've been mixing things up a little bit, and intentionally so, because one of the things I refer to quite often on the show is uh, this this term, uh, historical critical method. And so this method is uh, developed, you know, pretty late in the game, but it has its has its roots, has its seeds. Um, from from you know five six seven hundred years ago and various philosophers and enlightenment thinkers and this is really what the book politicizing the Bible is is getting to on in this historical development of the historical critical method um, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast so look back for more detailed explanations of it the first episode of this mini series I think we talked about it uh, at length a little bit and so. This week, we're going to be talking about England and Henry VIII. So last two weeks, we talked about Luther and uh, his kind of upbringing, his philosophical training slash him throwing out all philosophy, and then into some key uh, phrases or some key terms that I think is important as Catholics to uh, to know um, and to know what we mean by these terms and what Luther means and what a lot of non-Catholic Christians mean by these terms. Uh, and so we're going to continue uh, with these key figures. And, and in the book, uh, Hannah Weicker do a good of a job as they can saying uh, chronological, but a lot of these figures do overlap. So as we continue on with this miniseries, I don't want you to think that, you know, every person we go through, you know, lived at a later point in history. A lot of these overlap um, and uh, Henry VIII is one of them. So Henry VIII is a pretty important figure in world history for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, one of the things I think is, you know, I think a lot of times people have heard of Henry VIII, that he wanted a divorce and Rome would have given it to him. And so he started his own thing, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and while a lot of that is true, and we'll talk about that in today's episode, um, there was already foundations for him to come to the conclusions that he came to. Um, and it also, which we're going to talk about once again in a little bit here, it wasn't just him, right? It wasn't just Henry being Henry and doing his Henry thing. Um, and so one of the things that was set in place before Henry is, is it within England is this ordinance of this of statute of primineur. Uh, primineur. I don't even know how to think it's a French word, but anyway, uh, it's written in England. Um, anyway, this is in 1353. So, you know, this is about oh, 150 years. Um, this is so really side fact, side, side tangent. Um, I lived in Canada for a couple of years. And when I said, Oh, uh, <laughs> just, I'm not Canadian, but wow. Okay. Anyway. Um, so this, this ordinance, uh, 1353 within England, it forbid appeals to Rome. And so this was in England, right? So this is already the state 
trying to prevent uh, the disputes within the church, uh, trying to forbid people to appeal to Rome and not the government, the state, or the king in this case. And this started really trickling down uh, in the country. And so, for example, Han and Weicker point out that even bishops, like Catholic bishops in England, they didn't study canon law. They studied civil law. Um, and so this, 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 you have this trend in England, even before Henry, of the bishops really being a, a civil servant to the king, right? They're still Catholic bishops, but they, they, they're, they had a lot of secular authority. And um, like I said, they didn't study canon law a lot of times. They studied civil law. Um, and then part of this was uh, Marsilius's philosophy, which we talked about with Occam a few weeks ago, had slowly been creeping into the country. Europe had really impacted uh, England, and then England went back to Europe um, after this. And so Marsilius really, you know, his thing was uh, divinely appointed monarch. This this whole thing of it's not about papal authority, it's about uh, civil authority always trumps papal authority, church authority. And so this, this idea, this, this idea of a divinely appointed monarch really started reemerging in England, right? And so uh, England was, was primed for this separation, if you will. Uh, so King Henry's divorce was just a good excuse to make it happen, right? And so uh, let's, let's dive into Henry real quick, just as a person. So um, like a lot of the figures we're studying this book, I don't particularly like them. Um, it, you know, he, so he was, first of all, he was born in June, 1491. Um, and so he actually wasn't the original heir to the throne. He had to hold an older brother, uh, King Henry the seventh. Um, but his elder brother died in 1509. So Henry was 18. So just to kind of give you an idea of when this was, uh, the, the year Henry, Henry the eighth became King was the same year Machiavelli was at the height of his power in Italy and three years before he wrote The Prince. This was also two years after Luther was ordained a priest and eight years before the 95 theses, right? So the, these three key figures, huge figures, uh, were all around the same time. So you can imagine the political, philosophical, theological, just hotbed that Europe was at the time. Um, with you know the Avignon Papacy and all this craziness, right? All this craziness going down in Europe uh, during, during this time. And so Henry, kind of a punk, bit of a tool. And so uh, he married Catherine, uh, who would be the queen, uh, who was a daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. So she was a really, really, really important person. So, but here's the deal with Catherine, though. Catherine was originally married to Henry VII, Henry VIII's older brother. Now, they were only married for, I think, six months or so, and they never had any kids. And so what happened was uh, Henry had to have a bit of a dispensation uh, from the Pope, the current Pope at the time, to with from permission to marry his wife's widow, which he received. But here's the thing about Henry. Um, no joke. Catherine was two months pregnant with their first child and Henry already had mistresses, right? He already had ladies lined up. And unfortunately for Catherine, uh, she lost two sons. And then before she had her daughter, she had a daughter who lived and then she lost, she had another stillborn son after that. And so this, 
situation with Henry and Catherine, obviously it was a political marriage with Catherine. This alliance with Spain was huge. And uh, Henry had a mistresses out the wazoo, right? Tons and tons of mistresses. And Catherine, I mean, it wasn't like a secret. And um, Henry thought he was cursed. We're going to talk about it a little bit here. Um, but before we get into that, this is uh, going to get into around the same time as now Luther's 95 theses. Theses? Is that how you say that? I don't actually don't know. Um, and so, uh, so what happened was, you know, obviously Luther rejected basically almost all sacraments minus baptism and kind of communion. Um, and so Henry the eighth, same dude we're talking about, he wrote what was called defense of the seven sacraments in response to Luther and was given the time. No, I'm kidding. He was given the title defender of the faith by Pope Leo the 10th. Right. And so I was actually talking to a friend of mine who was a former Episcopalian priest. And uh, literally, so when you look at the queen of the, the current queen of England, defender of the faith is still one of their like titles that is on their long list of titles. And so um, obviously the church retracted that title later on down the road after Henry went cray cray. Uh, but ironically enough, King Henry VIII wrote defense of the seven sacraments and was given the title defender of the faith. Um, and, uh, and and really, the kind of ironic thing is, was that he defended the, the merit of marriage as a sacrament, right? So uh, we, we read this uh, from Hannah Weicker, quoting uh, Henry VIII in his defense of this sacrament of marriage. But why search for so many proofs in so clear a thing? Talking about marriage is Henry. He then asked, especially when that only text is sufficient for all. Where Christ says, whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Matthew 19. Oh, the admirable word, which none could have spoken, but the word that was made flesh. End quote. And this is Hanan Weicker. Henry ended by reminding Luther that the whole of church history is against him. The scriptures, the fathers, the manifest public, uh, the manifest public faith of the church for so many ages before us, as a quote. Um, and then all chided Henry, quote, have esteemed marriage as a sacrament, which makes wedlock honorable and does not, and does by grace, not only conserve, conserve the bed unspotted from adultery, but also washes away the stains of lust, turns water into wine and procures a holy pleasure of abstaining even from lawful pleasures. So Henry, a bit of a hypocrite here because he literally had a mistress when he wrote those words. Um, so Henry's a punk man. I'm telling you guys. And so eventually, you know, down the road here, Henry meets Anne Boleyn. So Anne Boleyn was actually not the first Boleyn that Henry set his eyes on. The first Boleyn was, uh, Mary Boleyn, who was Anne's sister. And so originally Henry had Mary Boleyn as a mistress and then had his eyes on Anne Boleyn and was like, you know what? I want you instead. And then Anne Boleyn says more or less, you know what? No, I'm not going to be your mistress. Uh, it's either the crown or nothing, right? So this is really when she plants the seed for Henry say, if you want me as a mistress, then get a divorce from your wife, get an annulment from your wife. And this is when 
we get to uh, Henry's great problem, right? The great matter. But real quick, it's important for us to, to look at this dude named uh, Tyndale. So William Tyndale um, was a figure, a key figure at the time for a few reasons. So one, he was the first one to translate the Bible into English. So there was a German version of the Bible, right? So Luther was already around at this point. There's a German version of the Bible. And so his Bible was the foundation for the King James Bible. And so this dude, obviously, uh, ironically, actually, acted against the wishes of King Henry, right? King Henry originally sent like spies and like uh, government officials to try to find and arrest Tyndale who had fled to Germany in order to print his Bible in English. So I think in the two year span, he had printed off like 10,000 English Bibles and was trying to sneak them back into England. And a lot of them got found out, but a lot of them made it through. So there's an English circulation of the Bible within England. And Henry was actually not okay with this at first until Tyndale wrote this book called The Obedience of a Christian Man. And so this philosophically gave a quasi like deific, deific, deific sorry, quasi deification to secular authorities, right? And so he did this by once again politicizing the Bible, hence the name of the book. Um, and so there's a few things, that, a few passages he quotes, but one of them is looking at Moses and the judges, right? Who he interpreted that as, you know, them speaking on behalf of God. So they are God on earth, essentially, right? And so uh, he even goes on to say this. For God hath made the king in every realm judge over all, and over him is there no judge. He that judges the king judges God, and he that resisteth the king resisteth God and damneth God's law and ordinance. If the subjects sin, they must be brought to the king's judgment. If the king sin, he must be reserved unto the judgment, wrath and vengeance of God. And as it is to resist the king, so it is to resist his officer, which is set or sent to execute the king's commandment. So this, you know, he, he kind of misquotes Paul here. Um, and he, you know, uses Moses and, and the book of Judges to kind of reach these points. So it's this very intentional misinterpretation of scripture in order to reach political ends. So King Henry, who at first doesn't like Tyndale because he's printing the book in English, reads this book, The Obedience of the Christian Man, and says, you know what? This is a pretty bomb book. I like this book a lot. He even says every king should read this book, right? Um, and so the thing with Tyndale is he goes beyond Luther's two kingdom doctrine that we talked about the past couple of weeks of one kingdom on earth, one earthly kingdom. No, he says there's one kingdom and the kingdom has one divinely appointed monarch, right? So there is, there's no need for a pope. We have a king, right? So this is a philosophical foundation that Tyndale's not the guy who, who started this. You have Marsilius um, early on, you know, who, who started this trend like we talked about earlier. It snuck its way into England and he was, he was formed by, Tyndale was, was formed by some reformation, more for, reformative thought from the Reformation. Within the schools he studied, um, it's not like he like invented all this stuff, but his book influenced King Henry VIII and uh, kind of led to his acceptance of some of these ideas, right? And so then we get to King Henry's 
back to his divorce, right? So once again, kind of we're talking about, we're always going to talk about the Bible, right? But um, this is when we get to a few key passages that King Henry misinterprets, I would say arguably misinterprets. And this is the reason why he can then try to fight for the divorce, right? So we have to remember that King Henry VIII married his older brother, his dead older brother's sister, right? He got a dispensation from the Pope to do so, but he said that the dispensation should never have been given because it's contrary to the word of God. And he's looking at two key verses from Leviticus here. The first one from Leviticus 18, 16, and it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. She is your brother's nakedness. The other one is from 2021, still in Leviticus. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So it's this idea of the Levitical curse of childlessness, right? Which King Henry VIII believed was on him because his wife, Catherine, they had, he had no heirs, right? Now, granted, he had a daughter and he also had a son out of wedlock with one of his mistresses, right? Um, so, but he had no, he had no legitimate heirs. And so he felt that he was under the curse of Leviticus. So now what do we say to this as Catholics, right? Well, a few things. We have to look at the Bible as a whole, right? So one of the, one of the keys in method C is always reading scripture within its greater context, both in the book and as a Bible as a whole, knowing that scripture can never be contradict, contradictory, right? And so if you literally just go two books down in the Pentateuch to Deuteronomy 25.5, we read this, where it is, sorry, it's, it's uh, the Leverite law basically saying where it is mandatory that if a brother dies, a remaining brother shall take her, the widow, as his wife, right? So even, this is quoted in the New Testament when the Sadducees come up to Jesus and says, you know, seven brothers and the first one dies and leaves a wife and the second one marries her and they all die and, you know, whose wife is she in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you know, you didn't know the scriptures of the power of God. There is no marriage in, in the kingdom of heaven. Um, they're neither married nor given to marriage in the kingdom of heaven. So first off, we would point to that and say, okay, well, in this passage, it's literally a law, an obligation to marry your brother's widow if they don't have any kids, right? Uh, for a few reasons, you know, one, to take care of the widow, to make sure the brother's line continues on and all these things. Um, so we see these two seemingly contradictory passages and within the Pentateuch, within the Torah, arguably both written by Moses. And so how do we come to peace with both of them? Well, it's actually pretty easy. The, the first one, not taking your brother's wife, is talking about a living brother. Like if your brother's still alive, yeah, don't sleep with his wife, you awful human being, right? And the second one in Deuteronomy is, is clearly talking about a, a brother who passes away. But for King Henry VIII, because he's childless, doesn't have an heir, he sees himself wrongly as uh, under the Levitical curse because he has no kids, right? Uh, no, no successful heirs. And because he, he quote unquote, uncovered his brother's nakedness, right? Um, and so he's looking at this passage and he's reading it, um, but he's not considering Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. 
and a few other things. So he, he had to write to the Pope, and this is the thing too. So he had to write to the Pope to ask for a dispensation for, for uh, and, and sister, right? Or sorry, for, to marry Catherine. And so here's the thing too, though. If now he, he wants to marry Anne Boleyn, so he's asking for an annulment for Kat, from Catherine basing his argument off this Levitical passage, right? Um, but then he has to ask for a second dispensation because he had been with her and Anne Boleyn's sister as a mistress. So they were now related by what was called the first degree of affinity. But so it's one of those things, but he appealed to the literal sense in Leviticus because the reason he said, oh, it doesn't, even though, yeah, I can't be with my brother's wife in Leviticus, right? Um, but um, it said, doesn't say I can't be with my sister's sister, right? Uh, it says brother in Leviticus. It's clear that it's all about brother, not about sister, because it says brother in Leviticus, therefore not about sister. So it's very, he's very selective in what he chooses to interpret literally or not. And so he writes to the Pope being like, hey, like I slept with Anne's sister Mary. So I need you to give me a dispensation after the annulment so I can marry Anne, even though I was kind of married to her sister because we had intercourse and that's what intercourse does. Um, but so like, if you could do that after the annulment, that would be great. Um, and so obviously the Pope said, uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm not going to, not going to give you an annulment because one, your, your biblical exegesis is awful and wrong. Two, I gave you a dispensation already to marry. So you knew what you were doing. Um, and like, just no, like you're not getting an annulment. It's, it's a valid marriage. And so Henry was done, got ticked off. Right. Um, and so once again, though, we, we have to remember that this Marcellian philosophical thought was already in England, right? The bishops were already on the King's side. They basically worked for the King. You had all of parliament kind of within this thought of this divinely appointed monarchy. And so once again, and they always point to, to King David, how King David was both monarch and leader of the, the Israelites, right? And their, their cult, right? He was the high priest and king, which we know foreshadows Christ. And, you know, the Pope is not a king, right? But rather the vicar of Christ who holds the keys of St. Peter. Um, it was just, he's just the, the, he's not, he doesn't call himself king, right? He's the vicar of Christ. Um, so anyway, we have this culture of England that's they're basically ready to to do away with papal authority, whether they, they say it out loud or not. And so Henry calls together Parliament in 1534, and a month later, the Act of Supremacy was released by Parliament. Right, so November of 1534, the Act of Supremacy was released, and you know this says a few things, um, but more more the most important basically being how we're no longer under the Pope. We have a king, and the king is the head honcho, right? The king is the head of the church. He's divinely appointed monarch by God. We don't need papal authority. We don't need the pope. Um, the king is in charge of all the bishops. All dogmatic discussions and arguments begin and end with the king, right? Um, it says a lot more than that, and if you're uh, Anglican or Episcopalian and listening to this, I don't, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to really quickly say, what would take a long time to explain. Um, and so I just wanted to like read this passage though from Han and Weicker just to give you an idea once again of Henry VIII, right? And kind of how all this played out. 
So Hannah Weicker say this. The very same year that Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy and Henry's marriage to Anne was made secure, Henry had already shifted his desires to Jane Seymour. Catherine of Aragon died in early January 1536, and in mid-May of that same year, Anne Boleyn was beheaded on charges of adultery. Cromwell had been the agent of this queen's removal as well as guy named Cromwell. Two days before her execution, Archbishop Kramer was able to rule in court that Henry's intercourse with Anne's sister had rendered null his marriage to Anne after all. Um, and on the day she was beheaded, Cranmer offered a dispensation from uh, to Henry so that he could marry Jane Seymour, which he did 11 days later. Now that Henry was supreme head of the church, things could move quite quickly. Jane Seymour would die in October of the following year, giving Henry his male heir, Edward VI. Anne of the German Duchy of Cleves, a Lutheran, would be Henry's next wife, a suitable political theological alliance, as the Protestant-leaning Thomas Cromwell thought. Given that her older sister was married to elector John Frederick of Saxony, a great champion of the reformers, upon seeing her in person, Henry took an immediate dislike to Anne, which initiated Cromwell's decline. But not wanting to offend the Germans, he married her on January 6, 1540, and had the marriage annulled six months later. Henry married Catherine Howard less than a month after the annulment, in fact, the very day that Thomas Cromwell was beheaded. In February 1542, Catherine was executed on grounds of adultery, hence treason, and buried near the chapel where Anne Boleyn lay. So, this is really, I mean, the first of many people we're going to see that, I mean, so obviously use scripture as a political stick to hit people with and to accomplish goals, right? As the head of the church, he can do whatever he wanted to. As the civil monarch, he could do whatever he wanted to to a certain extent. Parliament was on his side. You know, he all he had to do was accuse his wife of adultery, and that's tantamount to treason, and so she got beheaded. And so if he didn't like somebody, yeah, just kill her. And so Henry's a punk, and he obviously he used Leviticus. He used... The, the, the Davidic monarchy and other and Moses and all these other people to justify his divinely appointed authority. And he was called the defender of the faith at one point. Obviously that was rescinded. He was excommunicated and all these good things. Um, but anyway, yeah, Henry's the punk. So we're starting to see a shift here in, in these key political figures and in reform, uh, reform figures and how they very intentionally and not really super subtly use scripture in order to reach political ends. So next week, we're going to talk about Descartes. Um, so this is a guy I think, therefore I am, which is one of the dumbest things you can say. We're going to talk about Descartes. It's a really, really important. Um, and I said next week. Sorry, not next week. In two weeks, we're going to talk about Descartes because I am taking a group of high school students to a Catholic summer camp next week. So pray for us. It'll be a grand old time going to Camp Wild Sky. So anyway, pray for us. We'll be back in a couple weeks with our next episode of Catholics with Bibles. God bless y'all. All right, y'all. So a lot more could be said about uh, King Henry VIII. But as always, I'm going to refer you back to the book that we're reading, Politicizing the Bible. If you want to know more about King Henry or this historical situation that we didn't have time to cover, but it's really good stuff. It's really important to understand just kind of how the world got to where it is today and how political theology got to where, or not political theology, biblical theology got to where it is today. So I hope you've been loving this miniseries. It's one of my favorite books. I love it. It's fun stuff. And this is Catholics with Bibles, y'all. We'll see you next time.